Welcome to episode 37. We are beginning Isaiah, which is a really fun thing oh, for, yeah. my, for my wife, <laughs> as you well know her book. And by the way, that book is on sale. We're about to show them that in just a second. We're about to yeah. show them. Anyway, um, this is going to be really fun. My wife is a Isaiah expert, and she has done so much work on Isaiah. Anyway, I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda Pickering. And we have on our website, we have a little handouts, uh, prophetic appointments that kind of give you these bifed structures. And she does a little 20-minute um video that helps just explain it all right so if you feel kind of lost in all of the literary structures in isaiah because isaiah is a master of embedding in structures within structures and everything we kind of drew this little blueprint that you can kind of see behind us in this class and um Actually, we thought it would be fun for if you had kids, you could use print the black and white ones and then print a color one and then they could kind of color the structures in as we learn them or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to use them at for um, the there's a little 20 minute video that goes with it and explains the handout and i don't know why but i can't get it to go alpha by by class number on our website that that little zero zero video the intro video it always rides right there between class 13 and class 14. so if you're looking for it it's uh right on our website under the isaiah classes and it explains the handouts and you can just download those for free on the website um, one more quick thing before we leave the title slide, and that's on each of these lessons, of course, we won't be able to go into near the depth and detail that we do in the Isaiah classes online. Um, so I'm going to kind of suggest two or three classes that you might want to listen to if you want to go deeper into some of the material that we'll be covering in each class. So um, class 15 is the bifid structure online. Uh, class number two is the day of the Lord, where we go into the ruin and the rebirth in depth there. And class number five is a the apostasy, judgment, restoration, salvation cycle, which we're not even going to have time. To do so if you want to learn about that one that one's in that one begins in chapters one through five and you can go watch that class and get more in depth on the chapters that we were assigned to read for come follow me in this first isaiah class so just around i mean to sum that up a little understand that we've got five lessons to teach isaiah for come follow me she has 28 beautiful lessons on about an hour and a half each so this is going to be a very abridged version i'm gonna do a bird's eye view of isaiah and i'm so excited 30,000 foot level yeah but i really think that people can get a real good handle on isaiah in just these five classes so let's go yeah all right let's move on so this is our website it's www.propheticappointments.com you can see right here on the website that we that there's Isaiah classes and the handouts were up at the corner. Click on that. We've got the study guide that goes with all the classes. You don't have to have it, but it's really nice if you do. It is on sale. It's the cheapest we ever ever sell it for. So now's the time. We'll keep it up until October 10th. That that will be for everybody. That will be when we finish up the Isaiah classes in October. <laughs> All right, one of the things that we need to, to lay down really solid right out of the gate is that according to 
Isaiah and according to the Book of Mormon, we here in America are referred to as Gentiles. When you go into the vision uh, in 1 Nephi 13 and 14, when you see um, the pilgrims coming to America, when you see the Revolutionary War and all of those things, you'll notice that we in America are always referred to as the Gentiles. And One time I... I was going to say, ahead, yeah. one time uh, we, we were teaching this, and somebody come up and says, we're not Gentiles. And, you know, I we're realized... We're House of Israel, right? Yeah, we're House of Israel, but realize that what makes the difference between the House of Israel and Gentile is covenant, really, when you get right down to it. Right. It's covenant. It's right in the name, actually. And, right. And, and just because we're referred to in America as Gentiles throughout Scripture... It doesn't mean that we aren't numbered with the house of Israel. It doesn't mean that we aren't Ephraimites. I mean, in the last days, Israel scattered all the way through the world. But it's very important that we understand that we're identified as Gentiles in the scriptures. Because if you don't, you won't read what's about us knowing that it's talking about us, right? Right. So, by revelation, at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith said, Now these words... Oh, Lord, actually, he's not the one that read it, but um, I think it was John Taylor. Now these words, O Lord, we have spoken before thee concerning the revelations and commandments which thou hast given unto us who are identified with the Gentiles. So this isn't a point of contention. Yeah, it's just a, a way to describe who we are. And it's very important to understand that before we begin. All right, so we're going to go ahead and look at what Nephi says in 2 Nephi about Isaiah because we are actually in a time of decision for the Gentiles. And in 2 Nephi 25, he says, Now I, Nephi, do speak somewhat concerning the words which I have written, which have been spoken by the mouth of Isaiah. For behold, Isaiah spoke many things which were hard for many of my people to understand, for they know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. Now, this is given in the Book of Mormon as the second key to understanding Isaiah. And, and you understand what they're really referring to as the manner of the Jews here is their festivals. Well, it's to a their large degree. times, but it is also the way they structure and use poetry and use right. bracketing and all these literary tools that we in our Western culture have lost touch with. Well, we're just rediscovering now. Mostly. Exactly. And so in that way, Isaiah is a book that's been unsealed. Most of my work is standing on the shoulders of a giant and my mentor, Dr. Avraham Gilyadi. And I always want to give him credit. He's so generous in letting me use freely his materials in my work to teach the teenagers and to teach you. And so I want to thank him and accredit him for showing me the manner of prophesying among the Jews. In 2 Nephi 27, he says, But behold, in the last days, or in the days of the Gentiles, yea, behold, that's, that's us. We're in the time of the Gentiles, this time period when the gospel went to the nations after the crucifixion of Christ. It was taken from Israel or the Jews at that time, and it was brought now to the nations. Gentiles in Hebrew is goyim, and it means simply the nations. Well, so, And if you remember, back when I was showing the, the actual Hebrew, the difference between Gentile and 
house of Israel is anointed goyim. Right. Meaning that if you have been anointed or if you have been set apart, that is Israel, really. So literally, by Ephraim's patriarchal blessing in Genesis 49, we are Ephraim amongst the nations. Going back to 2 Nephi 27, Behold, all the nations of the Gentiles and also the Jews in the last days, both those who shall come upon the land and those who shall be upon their other lands. You can see that we have this big, huge uh, dispersion of the house of Israel and the Gentiles uh, in all other lands, yea, even upon all the lands of the earth. Behold, they will be drunken with iniquity. <clears throat> And all manner of abominations. Look okay, around, so right? throw us all in the same boat, right? Right here, right out of the beginning, just like Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 1. And when that day shall come, they shall be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with a great noise and with storm and with tempest and with the flame of devouring fire. So this was a warning of this time. We're preparing for this time. All during the time of the restoration, in the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, we're getting ready for this day of the Lord, that that 66% of prophecy is focused on, and all of the book of Isaiah, and all the book of Revelation on the day of, of the Lord, and Daniel as well. This apocalyptic prophecy literature is all pointed to this time that happens at the end of the time of the Gentiles, and we're just right there almost and in, in uh 2030 which at the time of this recording is eight years from now we will have fulfilled the 10 percent of the 2000 years since the restoration 200 years since the restoration of the church in 1830 to 2030 and this time of the gentiles is prophetically 2000 years or two days in hosea 6 2. All right, going back to 2 Nephi 28, it's a time of decision for the Gentiles. Woe be unto the Gentiles, saith the Lord God of hosts. For notwithstanding, I will lengthen out mine arm unto them from day to day. They will deny me. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me. For my arm is lengthened out all the day long, saith the Lord God. God of hosts. Now you can see here that there's a split in the Gentiles between they that deny me and those that if they will repent. And so throughout scripture you'll see that at the end of the time of the Gentiles, of all of those Gentiles who say they are Israel, say that they do believe in Christ, there's a 50% fallout for those that actually stay faithful in the end time. That's pretty scary. We have a big clue of why we stumble, why the Gentiles stumble in the end time in 2 Nephi 28. He says, Blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. And from them that shall say, We have enough. From them shall be taken away even that which they have. Now, this is a triple warning that he's going to give us. This is a triple warning that we're going to be given of what the Gentiles do that causes them to stumble. Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man, or maketh flesh his arm, or shall hearken unto the precepts of men. 
save their precepts shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. You can put your trust in your armies, you know, like they told uh, the kings of Israel, they were not to multiply money, they were not to multiply armies, and they were not to multiply their families so that they could build their own dynasty. Your trust needs to be in God, not in man. And this is over and over again in the Book of Mormon. In chapter 32, Nephi says, Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Now, the words of Christ is huge in Isaiah because it is the coming forth of the words of Christ in the end time. We're going to see this in Isaiah 29 that causes this split, this polarization. Okay? Wherefore I. Two churches only. Yeah, and we're going to kind of go into that in more detail. But wherefore I say unto you in the next lesson, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all the things that you should do. Wherefore now after I have spoken these words, if you cannot understand them, it is because ye ask not, neither do you knock. Which is the definition of what? In, hard heart. Yes, that's a hard heart. That's a definition. Mike <clears throat> tells us to Laban and Lemuel, why have you not asked of God? Why do you harden your heart against the truth? Wherefore, ye are not brought into the light, but you must perish in the dark. And now, I, Nephi, cannot say more. The Spirit stoppeth mine utterance, and I am left to mourn because of the unbelief and the wickedness and the ignorance and the stiff-neckedness of men. For they will not search knowledge, nor understand great knowledge when it is given unto them in plainness, even as plain as word can be. Wow. Then the angel tells him that he's not allowed to reveal anymore, and you'll find throughout the Book of Mormon when the angel says, no, you're not allowed to write any further, they begin to quote Isaiah. And so welcome to the book of Isaiah. Welcome to a book that you will need to search and that if you do, you will understand great knowledge. And I believe that when you begin to see how the book of Isaiah is written and what Isaiah is trying to tell us, it will unlock the way you read all of the rest of the content in Scripture. Jesus, in 3 Nephi 23, tells them, And now, behold, I say unto you, that you ought to search these things. Notice he never says read it. Yeah, it's not Even, passive. Yeah. It's not like some of us read. The learning we of, just kinda... Yeah, the learning of the Jews requires searching. It's designed that way. Yea, a commandment. Notice the commandment is in the center between the two ideas that we are to search these things diligently for great are the words of Isaiah. So with that, we're in, in, in a few lessons, we're actually going to show you the literary structures and what Jesus was actually doing with his commandment to search Isaiah. But for now, we got to dump, jump right in. We've got a lot of chapters to cover in this lesson. A few tools that we will need the learning of the Jews that we need to understand is that they frequently in scripture personify, use metaphors, 
or we like to call the kids like to call them code names. Okay, there's these code names in scripture that are talking about people. Um, it's fun to use a code name because if it's a, a particular person and you use and that that is a terrible tyrant, we can call him Wrath. And because we gave him a code name instead of calling him by name, then it actually lessens the tension between the historical reading and the end time prophetic reading of that verse because the wrath applies to both of them. So that's one of the reasons that the prophets use code names is for the multi-layered reading that you can do with them. In Isaiah, there are code names for an end time tyrant who rises um, on the stage and he is in direct opposition to a servant, a servant of God that rises as well. You can see these charts if you have the book Isaiah Illustrated on page 86. If you don't have the book, we are going to try to make these slides for this presentation available to download from Mike and Nancy's Latter-day Media site so that you can you can not worry about having to write all this down because we're going to show you a lot of charts that are from Isaiah Illustrated. So here in the gray, you can see names that that isaiah will use for this end time tyrant but we notice like with the word hand that those that word can also be used in the context of the good guy yeah kind of a left and right hand. a left hand and a right hand right and and these are the two opposing forces that come that are going to cause this great polarization which kind of goes right into the last about. lesson we did where you know, we talked about must needs be opposition in all things. And right. that's no different in the end times. We have these two very distinct opposing. Just keep it simple the good guy and the bad guy. Yeah. The really, really bad guy and the really, really good guy. Okay. All right. You can see that they are both a tongue because they're both spitting, teaching something. Yep, they're teaching something. One is teaching something that will lead to destruction. The other is teaching something that will lead to truth and to salvation, meaning Jesus Christ, for his name is salvation. Now, not all of their names are shared. Some of the names are just for the bad guy, just for the tyrant in the end time. He is an axe. I would assume... That's also true of the good guys. Some of the names are just... Right, right, right. And so we're showing you some of the names that are only used for the tyrant in the end time. Anger, um, downpour. It's, it's very interesting in Isaiah that there are a lot of metaphorical pseudonyms that are stormy and tempest and uh, heat and indignation. He's very, very angry, wrathful. And so all of these become codenamed for him. In Daniel, you'll notice that he's a little horn. That's not in Isaiah, but I'm gonna show you a link where you can well, actually link him to what, the, the little horn to what Isaiah calls this end time king of Assyria. Don't forget that horn represents power. Power, right. Yeah, so the, the, the two, Horned beast, the seven horned beast, the seven headed beast with ten in Revelation, horns, right? Ten horns, all those different descriptions, and then the little horn is not little in power; it's little in length of time. Time that he he, yeah, he doesn't arises. He right? doesn't reign very long. 
Right. We get, we're getting into Daniel, and Pharaoh will yeah. chase Daniel right down the rabbit hole every time. <laughs> <laughs> He's our Daniel expert. So when you see this storm imagery, we're talking about this end-time tyrant figure that Isaiah calls the king of Assyria. And using metaphorical pseudonyms for, for characters in Scripture is nothing new. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have prophecies of this end-time Antichrist, this little horn of Daniel, this prince of Tyre in Ezekiel, and the unclean spirit in Matthew 12. So he's a man of sin. All of the, there's code names that are used for this same character throughout Scripture in end time apocalyptic prophecy. We're, we also learned that a lot of the code names that Isaiah is using are taken directly out of the book of Psalms. They're right there. Uh, used in the same way. So here's an example, personifications and metaphor for the arch tyrant, the end time antichrist. The end of the world resembles the time of a great flood in wickedness and a widespread destruction of life. He causes a lot of damage. The arch tyrant is destructive like the sea stirred up. Remember that storm imagery? And he's like a river. He, he heaves beyond his bounds and he overflows his banks. In another place it says that he overflows his borders. He begins to, his world conquest in the end time. The arch tyrant's armies overwhelm the wicked and inundate their lands, leaving behind only disaster and desolation. So a lot of these ideas are ancient motifs of chaos, destruction, and and mud and all of these things that that represent chaos and isaiah is actually going to play a game with the chaos and the creation words we'll show you that in just a minute so like Farrell said there are servant only names names right. that you're not going to find for the tyrant and ups and they are i pass that up there are names like the trumpet because he announces the preparations for the coming of Christ, we have him being called righteousness. That is one of his main names that he's called. Jesus Christ is salvation, and he is righteousness, and he prepares, righteousness prepares the way for salvation to come. We'll show you that in some verses as well. Again, in Scripture, we have names for this end-time servant, the branch the mighty hand, my servant David. These are from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, David, their king, whom I will raise up. In Zechariah, the branch who builds the third temple and who reigns with the Lord at that temple. And this is not new. This isn't. I was going to. Go ahead. Jump in on that last slide when you talk about when Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about it. That's long after King David. Oh, exactly. So we're not talking about King David. We're talking about a, another individual that comes on stage. And that's why we've been emphasizing all year the Davidic covenant, what that means, what a righteous Davidic king looks like, because he is the model. Uh, a righteous Davidic servant is the model for this end-time person who comes to restore physically the promised lands to Israel. I hope I'm not jumping in here where I where I'm going to confuse your 
train of thought here, but we're going Daniel again. No, 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 Daniel. <laughs> I was just going to bring out that if you remember, King David served in a more political role in ancient times, and Nathan and Samuel were the prophets. Right. So I always keep that type and shadow in my head that that this David character may be more political right. than than and but, that the the prophet is an independent position almost well we've we've kind of noted before though that in the end time they are kings and priests true in order to fulfill to well, play the sense. role of a king david type uh, covenant that they can invoke protection on other well, people king david definitely was anointed right Definitely. Okay, so this is Joseph Smith, just in review. Christ, in the days of his flesh, proposed to make a covenant with Israel, the house of Judah. But they rejected him and his proposals. And in consequence thereof, they were broken off. And no covenant was made with them at that time. But their unbelief has not rendered the promise of God of none effect. No. For there was another day limited in David, which was the day of his power. And then his people will be a willing people. The throne and kingdom of David is to be given to another by the name of David in the last days, raised up out of his lineages. So this is not new doctrine. This is very much the Jews are, are totally focused on this end time messianic son of David that will restore the promised lands and the political kingdom of God on the earth. Right. All right, so some personifications and metaphor for the servant. He's a trumpet heralding the day of Jehovah, announcing Jehovah's coming to reign on the earth. God appoints him as a light to the nation. So a light is one of his metaphorical pseudonyms. He exemplifies righteousness and faithfulness to God's covenant in the time of wickedness. So this end time David is going to keep covenant. He's going to be radically faithful all the way through. He is a chosen arrow hidden in God's quiver, a righteous branch that bears good fruit. He is God's saving arm. So all of these you can see. And when you see light, when you see a branch, we're talking creation, new life, new growth. These are all creation metaphors in the book of Isaiah. Now, because the servant could not do his mission without the atonement of Jesus Christ, without the Lord standing by him to help him and to forgive him when he messes up, we have some names that are shared by the servant and the Lord himself, such as arm, such as light, and such as warrior. We'll see a fiery flying serpent, and we'll see a lawgiver. All of these, the covenant, all of these names can be applied to both the servant and to the Lord in the book of Isaiah. A son on the throne of David. Of course, again, Jesus Christ is the grand exemplar. He is the greatest of all Davidic kings. He was faithful to God. And people, if they believe in him and are faithful to him, he suffered that they could be redeemed. And this is the type of role that a Davidic king 
plays as a protector of his people, willing to do, like Moses, whatever it takes to save his people. Of course, there are words in Isaiah that are for Jesus Christ alone, one of the big ones being salvation. Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus' name, means literally salvation. In Isaiah 30, Though my Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall your teacher remain hidden no longer, and your eyes shall see the Master. So beautiful. There you see three names of the Lord, Lord, Teacher, and Master. And then just looking in the Bible here, look at all of these other names for Jesus. You know, he's the true vine. He's the bridegroom. He's the anchor. He's the rock. He is the Savior. He is I am. There are often in Scripture, yes, all of these beautiful names. And Isaiah is going to make heavy use of metaphorical pseudonyms so that he can speak of history and he can use stories in history to describe the future. Well, that's our theme. I know. Isaiah 46, 10. Let's go. I shall show the end from or the end from the beginning. And I totally slaughtered it. That's all right. <laughs> it's okay. I got the deer in it's, the head. It's actually <laughs> in our overview right there. He says from the beginning he sees the end. end right. From from um, ancient times, things not yet done. Is what it says. All right, so this is what I got when I started learning all the literary structures in Isaiah. I thought if we could just put, um, maybe make a blueprint of everything that was going on. It, it's just way too big and too confusing to to examine them all at one time, and yet we needed an overview. And so, probably the most important structure to understand in the book of Isaiah is called the bifid structure. And if you're like me, you wondered what in the world is a bifid. <laughs> so I had to go research that one. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> Bicycle, two wheels. Okay, so you're okay. going by for bicycle. By fed. Just think of being <laughs> fed through two by through sources. Two Very good. Okay, so. Okay, there's a mnemonic for you. Um, also, a bifid is a type of leaf. And so if you've ever, you know, seen how a palm branch grows, it, it grows as one and then it splits off into several, but it's still one leaf, right? It's still the same leaf or frond. There is a type of leaf that grows and then splits into two. And both halves are one leaf and it's called a bifid leaf like you see on the slide there. And so in Isaiah, both sides carrying the theme. Right. Both sides are still the same book of Isaiah. But it's, it's. Do I get a star on my head for that? Do. Very good. <laughs> All right. So this is our uh, this is our overview architectural drawing of the book of Isaiah, and we're going to take a look at the bifid structure. The bifid structure is represented by the pillars that move from left to right on your screen. So if we were to draw it out, going from left to right, you have chapter one and six. You can see that there are different colors. And then that there's these are main chapters in this first seven sections of the Bifid structure. They're themes. And then when they discovered the Isaiah scroll, there was actually a split between 33 and 34. Yeah, for a time they thought there were two books. Yeah. And well, a lot of people today still speculate that there's two books 
you can. I guess in a sense they are, but they are. Because it's bifid. Yeah, it's bifid. There is no way. It could not be possible when you begin to understand the literary structures that Isaiah did between the two halves. There's no way that somebody could have finished what he started because of the intricate, interwoven structures that that span the entire book. Well, and I like the way Dr. Chuck Misler puts it. You know, if you had any doubts about Isaiah being written all by Isaiah, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ comes Absolutely. to the rescue and he refers to it all. So he, he kind of puts the end. Jesus on. refers to uh, to verses in the first half and attributes them to Isaiah, and Jesus refers to verses in the second half, attributing them as well to Isaiah. So it's pretty much an so, end of debate know, if you accept exactly. the words of Christ. But even by the literary structures themselves, that they, they had to have been uh, composed and detailed by the same person. So in the second half of the book of Isaiah, you're going to have these same seven themes that you had in the first half repeated again in the second half. And this is really, really cool because what it does is it kind of ties chapters in the first part to chapters in the second part. And we're not making this up. We're going to show you how the bifid structure is actually the key to unlocking all the different things that Isaiah was doing in the book of Isaiah. All right, so there you have the themes. You're going to see this throughout our book, Isaiah Illustrated. We have a theme in gray, a theme in blue, a theme in yellow, a theme in red, green, teal, and purple. And if you're looking through the book of Isaiah Illustrated, you're going to see that when we write out the comments that... Dr. Abraham Gileadi is making on the different verses, you can see that his comments are in different colors. So this is, this one has telling a blue background. This is telling you what theme of the bifid structure you're in. And that becomes important as we start to look at the individual structures. So these seven themes are cumulative. They very first start with ruin and rebirth, then rebellion and compliance. And whether or not you rebel or comply is going to determine whether you are experience ruin or rebirth. And well, it's so kind of like they build as you choices you go up this ladder comparatively, and the things that are connected with that. So, if you rebel, then you'll re receive punishment. If you comply, you'll be delivered. And the, I like to think of compliance as trusting. Are you going to trust God? Are you going to rebel against him? And we're going to see this as we look at these particular chapters that go with these themes. The middle theme is humiliation and exaltation. Then on the fifth theme, we have suffering and salvation, disloyalty and loyalty. And then the culminating peak theme is disinheritance or inheritance. And what Isaiah is actually building with these themes is a doorway. It's a doorway back into the presence of God. Will you inherit the kingdom with him or will you be disinherited? And it all is about the choices we make along the way. And these are all represented in the bifid structure. Once a concept is established, 
it is then maintained throughout the remainder of the book. So once we've established the concept of ruin and rebirth, we'll refer to it again when we see rebellion and compliance. And then every theme will keep building and building and building all the way to the end of the book. So let's let's look at this in practical. Let, let's see what we're really talking about. In this first bifid theme, it's chapters 1 through 5 in the first half of Isaiah. It's chapters 34 and 35 in the second half. It is a reversal of circumstances that takes place between Zion and the nations. Zion is reborn as God's covenant people while the nations suffer ruin. Covenant curses turn into blessings for Zion while the nations are cursed. So you see that we could also call this a grand reversal. Zion is being persecuted. Yeah, persecuted, and then then at, at a center point, we reverse. This is the grand reversal. Right. And you know why this, this theme is so important to me. You, you want to, Because when Pharaoh figured out Daniel's numbers, this was one of the main measuring sticks that told me that it was exactly correct. So let me explain it to you so that you understand the ruin and rebirth. And we're going to spend a little time on this first theme in the book of Isaiah because I want you to see how real this is, how it is not made up. Isaiah is doing this. You can see him doing it because it couldn't be by accident. In this structure, we are going to learn that the Lord's day of vengeance and the year of retribution for Zion are the same thing. And this is a chart on page 34 of Isaiah Illustrated. We're going to start in, you've got chapters 1 through 5 on the left. You've got chapters 34 and 35 on the right. And you're gonna, we're going to start with ruin. Now, this is really important because you're going to notice in the words in these verses that it's one nation. It's not the time of the Gentiles. It's not international or universal it's national just one nation you can see here in the references to this ruin that we're talking about chapters one two three and five these are all in this first themed pillar of ruin and the only way we're going to be able to do it is to let you actually see it so let's look up all these references on the slide we've got ruin the ruin of israel we have the ruin of a nation that was God's people. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he beheld concerning Judea, Jerusalem, not the world. This is a nation. Alas, in verse 4, a nation gone astray, a people weighed down by sin. Your land is ruined and your cities are burned with fire. And so there is a historical application to this. But again, Isaiah, the entire book, is written taking pieces of history to illustrate an end time scenario. So moving on to verse to chapter two, it shall come against all the lofty cedars of Lebanon. In Isaiah, trees are metaphors for people, mountains for nations, and hills are cities. And you can read these both ways. You can either read it literally as a mountain and a hill, or you can read it metaphorically as a nation and a city. 
and the trees as people. It shall come against the lofty cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon, cedars of Lebanon were the, the most glorious trees that lift themselves up high and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all high mountains or nations and elevated hills. So here again, we're seeing the cedars of Lebanon. We're seeing a particular people and that Isaiah is speaking metaphorically. In chapter 3, it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is having a food supply shortage. Hmm. <laughs> and and it, their water supplies are going to get polluted here. And you're going to see this in several places in the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 5, again, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, judge between me and my vineyard. Therefore, the anger of Jehovah is kindled against his people. So you notice here that in the very first chapters of Isaiah, he's saying that the apostasy and the problem is not with all those other guys out there. It's my people, my people that have gone astray. And if that were not so, then the curses and the destruction that follow could not have happened. Now, in anciently, we have Jerusalem rejecting Jesus Christ. And when they did, what happened? The ruin, the ruin came on Jerusalem. So we see the ruin of a nation. But because of the ruin of that nation, we have a rebirth. We have another people that are reborn. And it's not a nation. It's all nations. It's the whole world. It's universal. Please notice that we are still in chapters 1 through 5. We're reading the left-hand side of the chart. We've gone now from the ruin of a nation to the rebirth of all the nations. This is like when the gospel was taken from the Jews, then it went to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles or the nations, right? So we have in the latter days, the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established and it shall be preeminent among the hills and all nations will flow into it. And many peoples will say, come and let us go up. And I know that we apply this very much to the restoration of the gospel and the people that are gathering that was instigated when the missionaries went out and began Israel, Israel, God is calling. But notice the last two lines. For out of Zion will go forth his law, and from Jerusalem the word of Jehovah. And I emphasize that so we see that this has not been completely fulfilled. Much of these prophecies are still future, though the prophet Joseph Smith laid the foundation for their restoration when, in the words of Moroni in Joseph Smith history, he was to shortly bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. Okay, but the day of the Lord and all of these um, re-inheriting the promised land and the destructions of the earth, they haven't happened yet. All right, now, in the Bifid structure, one through five are the ruin and reverse birth themes in the first half of the book, and they pair up with chapter 34 and 35. In the second half of the book, that's when we do the second theme, Ruin and Rebirth, the second time. Now, when we start in chapters 34 and 35, we notice that the ruin that we saw in the beginning, in the first half, that was for a nation. Now, 
The ruin is for the nations. Plural. Uh-oh. Okay. Let's take a look at that in those verses so that you can see. Number one, we're going to jump to 3 Nephi 16, where Jesus actually tells everybody, At that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel. Does it say if? Hard to see an if. I see lots of shalls, right? So the gospel that was given to the nation in the end time, they are going to um, apostatize in the same way the Jews did. That, that That's not happening here, right? Never. America. And it says we'll people. be lifted up in the pride of our hearts. Yeah, nah, we're not proud. Um, and notice this. It says that we'll, we'll reject the fullness of the gospel. What does that mean? We first have to have... The, the fullness gospel. of the gospel before we can reject it. So this isn't before Joseph Smith. This is after. Okay. And then it, it lists everything that you would read in the first page of our newspapers on the daily. And then it says, and when they shall reject the fullness of the gospel. That's us rejecting. That's the wife of, of Christ that apostatizes. I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. So do we still claim to have the fullness of the gospel? Absolutely claim. Then and this hasn't happened do. yet. Exactly. It's, this is coming, a rejection of the fullness of the gospel by... That doesn't mean everyone. Exactly, please. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Because you got to realize... Because there's the ones that are faithful, the 50% yes. that do believe, right? Yes. And that stay numbered with the house of Israel and, and actually stand for Israel. Come near. This is the, the verse that's talking about how the ruin at this time is not a nation anymore. This time, it's all the nations. Come near, you nations, and hear. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth give heed. Jehovah's rage is upon all nations. Now, remember that rage is a code name. Hmm. So, this is our end time bad guy. Because remember, in Deuteronomy, the Lord said that if you break covenant and if you sin against the covenant, you'll be smitten with the stripes of men. All God has to do is withdraw his protection and let the enemies get through the gate. Well, we're already there in so many ways. The secret yes. combinations are everywhere. Yes. They and that doesn't... And God, in and amongst us all over the place. God doesn't really have to do that. That's a natural consequence of our turning from Him and turning to our own human schemes, which we'll see very clearly in Isaiah. Jehovah's rage is upon all nations. His fury, that's our bad guy. He has doomed them and consigned them to the slaughter as a, con a consequence, like withered leaves from a vine or shriveled fruit. From a fig tree. We're going to see a lot of imagery of the fig tree. We'll pick up some more of it in a minute. But let's go to Romans 11 because Paul says the exact same thing that Isaiah just said. He says, I say then, have they the Jews stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles or to the nations. Now, if the fall of the Jews be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness when Israel returns and the Gentiles are numbered with them. 
Boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Getting kind of a little hint of a warning from Paul that eventually those in the end time of the Gentiles will do the same thing that the Jews did. So what did the Jews do at the time of Christ? They rejected him. They rejected the words of Christ and the fig tree was cursed and destruction came upon them. Well, if we do the same thing, what will happen? We too, in somehow, reject the words of Christ, which will bring destruction among the Gentiles or those that in the end time have become part of Babylon. Not those that are faithful Gentiles, but those that are wicked. Someone asked me to put this quote on, um, get them the reference to this quote by Brigham Young. So I decided to include it here so that everybody could have it. It's from Journal of Discourses, volume 8, verses one chapter, page 115. When he, Jesus, again visits this earth, he will come to thoroughly purge his kingdom from wickedness, and as ruler of the nations to dictate and administer to them as the heir to the kingdom. And the Gentiles will be as much mistaken in regard to his second advent as the Jews were in relation to the first. That's painful. That's, uh, well, you know, let's just be numbered with the faithful Gentiles that are numbered with the house Let of Israel. Let us stand with Peter, James, and John. Right. Yeah. All right, so we have the ruin of the nations there that we've just talked about, but if you continue on into chapter 35, we have a rebirth. Now notice this. So we had the gospel going to the nations and the rebirth of the gospel as it went to the nations through Paul and the apostles. Then we have the ruin in the end time when they reject the fullness of the gospel. But that at that point... The gospel goes back to one nation, not all the nations. We're going to go back. The rebirth part is going to be a nation. Watch this. In chapter 35, we're seeing that there's a desert and that the land is a thirsty place. Again, there we see a lot of imagery of God's people being hungry and thirsty and the Lord is bringing forth springs of water. There shall be highways and roads. Like the conditions that exist before are drought conditions. Exactly. And famine. The black horse, if you will, in the apocalypse of John the Revelator, which shall be called the way of holiness. So we have a city being born, and here it is directly in verse 10. The ransomed of Jehovah shall return. They shall come singing to Zion. Their heads crowned with everlasting joy. They shall have one joy and gladness when sorrow and sighing 
flee away. And you can see again from that, because sorrow and sighing has not flown away yet, <laughs> that this again is future and a national rebirth of Zion. Okay, one more. Nephi is going to do the exact same thing. He's like good. Yes, again. it is. It is exactly. It's a crossover event. It's that reversal that we're talking about right. in the ruin and rebirth structure. It's all throughout. Here it is in 1 Nephi 13. For there is one God and one shepherd over all the earth, and the time cometh that he shall manifest himself unto all nations, both unto the Jews, remember when he came the first time, and to the Gentiles. That was when the gospel went to the nations. And after he has manifested himself unto the Jews and to the Gentiles, he shall manifest himself unto the Gentiles. That would be the restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith. And then also to the Jews. So it goes back to the Jews. And, and remember, in the end time, it's not just the Jews. The house of Israel, if you go to Zenos' allegory in Jacob chapter 5 in the Book of Mormon, there's three branches that are broken off. One is Lehi. So there's Israelites here, natural branches in America, the descendants of Lehi. We have the Jews in Jerusalem. They are a natural branch as well. But we also have another branch that was broken off from Israel. The Ten Tribes. It's going to be the Ten Tribes, right? They were taken north. Yeah, that famous uh, seminary scripture chase verse in Ezekiel 37 where it talks the about branches it. Most of the time we just read over the one right. part. Right. We, we see Joseph and we see Judah and we see them becoming one branch, but you read that closely, the tribes are in there too. Yeah, the tribes, right? the ten tribes. Because in the end time, there's three natural branches. Right. And then there's those that were scattered who are called the Gentiles, even though they have a lot of Israelite blood in them, especially Ephraim. Okay. All right. So, he manifests himself unto the Gentiles and also unto the Jews. And then Nephi says, and the last, so the Jews were first and the Gentiles were last. The last are first in the end time. And the first shall be last when she comes back and believes in Christ and Israel is restored. So it's the exact same thing that Isaiah was doing with his ruin and his rebirth. The exact same thing that Paul was saying as well. So if there was all that in just the first part, what's going on in the next part of this connecting and stitching that Isaiah is doing between chapters 1 through 5 and 34 and 35? The next idea we see is in parallel because in both the first half in chapter 2 and in the second half in chapter 34 it refers to the day of the Lord so they're both the day of the Lord okay and then it talks about the annihilation of the enemies in the first part and in the second part and the annihilation of the enemies in the first part is apostate people of the Lord whereas in the second part part it's nations that fight against the lamb but either way when we apostatize we get numbered with the enemies of israel so let's just take a look at well, this in the text judas became one of the greatest enemies enemies yes so to speak Be and he was israel yeah. so yeah I, i'm afraid that is very true that apostates can be the most vitriolic yeah well and that's true of the prophet joseph smith yeah. The people closest, or some of them, 
were I won't the, say all of were, them. became his worst enemies. Yeah, became amongst the enemies that and and so that gathered together in in the book of Isaiah death. in the book of Isaiah the Gentiles that apostatize <clears throat> are are a wife that commits adultery. That that's how it's presented in Isaiah fifty four. We'll look about at, at that later on. The ruin is that it's. We said that there was the day of the Lord in the both the first and the second half. There it is in chapter two, verse twelve. The Jehovah of Hosts has a day in store for the proud and the arrogant. Okay, this is the day of the Lord, and there it is in in chapter thirty-four. For it is Jehovah's day of vengeance. It is a year of retribution on behalf of Zion. Whoa! Number one, you see that vengeance is colored gray. What does that mean? Ruin and rebirth. Ruin and rebirth, but it also means a code name for somebody. Yeah. It's the bad guy, okay? So the bad guy is the one that does the vengeance on God's people in the end time. And so when God turns the tables, it's retribution for Zion because she's been so persecuted and so abused by these unrighteous allies that are gathering around this figure in the end time. Here in chapter 1, 20 verse 24, you can see that, uh, I'm going to just jump down to verse 28, but criminals and sinners shall be altogether shattered, and those who forsake Jehovah are annihilated. So that's where we get this annihilation of the enemies. We have it over in chapter 34. Actually, chapter 34 is pretty graphic about the annihilation of the enemies. It's very symbolic. If you, you know, study in Isaiah Illustrated over in the comments, you'll see the, us go through a lot of the symbolism that's going on here. But we have um, his, the sword uh, drinking, its, drinking its fill in the heavens, and these people are sentenced. So this is a judgment for, for a fullness of iniquity. They have the, well, it says that the whore Babylon, she is drunk. On the blood of the saints. Yeah. yeah. She's very deserving of the judgment that falls on her. It's described in uh, Isaiah 34 as an immense massacre. Okay. All right. So this uh, retribution for Zion, when Zion gets saved, is this a good day or a bad day? Depends on which side of the Red Sea you stand in when it Exactly. If you're part of the people that have been persecuting God's people, um, this is a day of vengeance for you. But if you have been part of those who have been faithful, this is a day of retribution for Zion. And the amazing thing about this structure that Isaiah is creating between chapters 1 through 5 and 34 and 35 is that he's saying it is the same event. You know, it's fascinating to me. That after all these years, this is still the classic scene for the Red Sea. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> Good old Charlton Heston there for our Moses. That's right. <laughs> all right. And so it's the same in the end time. And this is the picture that Isaiah is painting. And then look, look at this, this next part. He says that when this big reversal happens, is at the appearance of the Lord. And look how he does it. He does this little crisscross between chapter 2 and chapter 34 and 35. You have the Lord's appearance, and then you have the Lord's appearance in the other side. But then on the in the early chapters, you have the, the Zion and Jerusalem gaining political power. And in chapter 34, you have the nations losing political power 
at the Lord's appearance. So let's look at it in the text. There's the Lord's appearance in chapter 2, verse 3, 4. Out of Zion shall go forth his law, and from Jerusalem the word of Jehovah. There he is. He's in Zion. He's in Jerusalem. And then right over here in chapter 34, it says when when they, well, let's crisscross down to the Lord's appearance. It says, say to those with fearful hearts, take courage, be unafraid. See, your God is coming to avenge and to reward. God himself will come and deliver you. This is so beautiful because it's right embedded in the midst of all this worldwide destruction of the nations in 34 and 35. So here we see the Lord's appearance in both places. And now watch in chapter 2, verse 4. He will judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. So there the Lord's kingdom is being established. And then look at verse 30, uh, chapter 34. It says, shall they summon its nobles when... It is no kingdom when all of its lords no longer exist. And see that loss of political power there. This is the great reversal. This is the great reversal between Zion and Babylon, the wicked nations of the world. We'll talk more about Babylon in the next Isaiah class. Okay, we're going to just zip really quickly. And, and again, we're really drilling in on chapters 1 through 5 and chapters 34 and 35 in the first theme of the bifid structure so that you can see how Isaiah works between the chapters in these pillars, okay? This one's a little more harder to see. That's kind of why, you know, I know most kids, I, most kids I teach are pretty lazy, and if they see this chart, you think they're going to look up all those verses? <laughs> Not hardly. So I'm trying to show you what he's doing in this one. We won't be going through the other ones in as much detail. I'll just kind of tell you what he's doing here. But in, um, in the last ideas, the last ideas are in parallel again, that an, a repentant, ran, uh, repentant remnant is ransomed in uh, chapter 1 over here, that returning remnant is ransomed in chapter 35 on the other side, and then get this, the glory of the Lord has returned to Zion and to Jerusalem. Taking a peek at it really quickly in chapter 1, verse 27, for Zion shall be ransomed by justice, and those of her who repent by righteousness. That's I love this because this end time figure, this end time son of David, this Davidic figure that that all of Psalms was looking forward to, and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel in the end time. For those of her that repent by righteousness, he's righteousness, and he restores justice to the world. What does that tell you? Do you think the tyrant is just? No. Very not. Very not. And the world is going to rejoice when justice and law and, and righteousness is restored. Um, then over in verse, chapter 35, we see them coming again. The ransom of Jehovah shall return and come singing to Zion. When sorrow and Zion flee away, we see the glory of the Lord in chapter 4. The glory of the Lord, the Shekhanah, that you know, with it, the light, that that pillar of fire, and, and by night and cloud by day, that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness, the presence of God, His glory in, in that literal symbol of His presence. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat. Who's the heat? Who's the storm? Who's the tempest? He's, well, the wrath, obviously. Yeah. I mean the. 
tyrant. Yes, this end time tyrant and his allies. A shelter from the heat of the day, a secret refuge from the downpour. There's that storm imagery. And from the rain. That's the glory of the Lord protecting Zion in Isaiah chapter 4. And here we see it again in Isaiah 35, the glory of the Lord. Joyously it shall break out in flower, singing with delight. It shall be endowed with the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. These are oases in a desert land. The glory of Jehovah and the splendor of our God they shall see there. So again, you can see Isaiah is very intentionally bringing ideas together between these two pillars and showing us through his literary linking that it is a single stage of events in the day of the Lord and that the events occur simultaneously and are at the same time both to avenge and to reward. The Lord, the Lord's day of vengeance is the year of the retribution on behalf of Zion. And all of this grand reversal is demonstrated in the structuring of the first theme of the Bifid structure. And that was only theme one. And we only have five classes to cover the entire book of Isaiah. So we are gonna have to sail right over the top of the rest of them. Let me show you how they work. The second, uh, in summary, the Ruin and Rebirth theme establishes the setting as Jehovah's Day of Vengeance during the end time time frame. The appearance of Christ is the pivotal event and it establishes the idea of a reversal of circumstances <laughs> between Zion and the nations of the Gentiles. It is the rebirth of Zion, but it is the ruin of those who do not repent and return. Again, now we can I, use this theme throughout the rest of the book. I was going to say, you know, um, conceptually, um, the be, I, would, I was going to say the beginning of this reversal um, very clearly is Adam on Dioma when when they have the big meeting there and there you go, all of the marching Daniel orders. right in the middle of Isaiah well, again. <laughs> it is absolutely the reversal. That is the rebirth of Zion. That is the grand reversal, and that is why it happens when Babylon falls. It's the two sides of the same coin, just like the Red Sea was the deliverance and the birth of Zion or Israel, whereas it was the destruction of the greatest world power militarily Egypt in Moses' day Babylon is the end time name for that alright so the second theme was rebellion and compliance it's chapters 6 through 8 which is our reading about King Ahaz in this lesson and chapters 36 through 40 we actually skipped the reading of because we covered it back in Chronicles but you remember back in Chronicles where it actually gives more detail about King Hezekiah and what happened at the city there. The reason I brought it back to Isaiah and showed you the differences between what was happening in the Chronicles and happening in Isaiah is because Isaiah is not trying to tell every detail of the story. Why? He is only telling those parts that present the picture that's pertinent to our day of the end time right the end time saving of Jerusalem again okay Israel's both rebirth both the new and the old yes both the new and the old but they're saved two different ways 
And we're yes. going to get to that. We're going to we're going to get to the battle of Ephraim, the battle at the gate, and we're going to get to the battle of Jerusalem in the next lesson. Stay tuned for that. Israel's rebirth as Zion results from compliance with God's covenant. So many of God's people prove faithful to God under all conditions. Hopefully, we're part of those guys, right? And the nations and the rebellious. Yeah. The nations and the rebellious of Israel fail the test that Zion passes. So we have a split here. Rebellion or compliance. And do you remember how that was illustrated in these chapters? We had King Ahaz and Hezekiah. Did did Ahaz listen to Isaiah? God said to trust in him, and what did Ahaz do? He made a treaty with Egypt, and he tried to, he did everything that Isaiah told him not to do. Even though Isaiah told him he would give him any sign he asked for to prove that God would fulfill his promise. King Ahaz, in chapter 68, becomes a type of a disloyal king. A Davidic king who falls, who does not keep faith with the Lord. Hezekiah on the other hand, in chapters 36 through 40 that we studied in First Chronicles is an example of a righteous Davidic king, one who stays faithful to the Lord under huge duress, and God fights the battle and saves Jerusalem from the king of Assyria in chapters 36 through 40. Now here's the amazing thing. Look what Isaiah has done. Isaiah is called in chapter 6. It's his prophetic commission where he's called, okay? In Isaiah chapter 40, the servant, this Davidic end-time servant, is called that's going to save Israel in the end time. So we have two prophets being called here at the beginning of the end. Look at chapter uh, the 6, verses 12 and 13. We have a historical preface. And in chapter 39 is your historical preface. What happened um, when King Hezekiah brought Babylon in? We have a little piece of history right there. So these are in parallel with each other. We have King Ahaz's rebellion in chapter 7, whereas we have Hezekiah's compliance in chapter 37 and 38. Do you see that Isaiah is creating a chiasm by chapters between the blue pillar in the first section and the blue pillar in the second section. He's actually chiastically structuring the chapters. And in the center, which is always the most important part, what do you have? Go ahead and read it. People's Rebellion. In? Chapter 8. Which is the first part. And People's Compliance in Chapter 36. So we have these two outcomes. So. Oh, wow. What? Right after the half hour of silence, two outcomes. Exactly. All right. And we have Isaiah painting a picture. He's telling us that this time, this grand reversal that happens, happens because there's a loyal Davidic king and a disloyal Davidic king. Well, hard to call him a Davidic king. Well, you, you do have the servant and the tyrant, but ouch, be careful here because... Look at David and Saul. Right. We have a disloyal Davidic king, and we have a loyal Davidic king, one that is faithful to God and, until he has his own sin and he well, fails I, I his test in the I guess I would not end. use the word Davidic. 
in the case of the disloyal one, we have a disloyal king well, and a loyal He Davidic. is a Davidic king. Ahaz was of the house of David. Right. I, he, I'm with that's you. what I mean by Davidic king. They they are they have the right to reign as kings of the descendants of David. And that's why in scripture they're called sons of David. But some are faithful and some are disloyal. And when right. they're when the, when you have a disloyal one, it's bad news. Bad news for Jerusalem. We also see this in Isaiah chapter 22. We have one named Shebna who is the steward of the palace. And the Lord gets pretty upset at him and he gets disciplined, he gets replaced by Eliakim. So we have Saul and David, we have Shebna and Eliakim, we have Ahaz and Hezekiah. We have a lot of types going on for well, the two types, for yeah. faithfulness and disloyalty or rebellion in the end time. Ahaz and his people rebel and fail to pass their test of loyalty to Jehovah, thereby losing covenantal protection. Now when we get into theme six, we're going to start seeing what we fail in the end time, what loyalty tests we fail in the end time. Isaiah's going to, he's going to show you all of it. Remember, he sees the whole picture. And that is why we're commanded to study Isaiah, because he saw all of it. This rebellion is juxtaposed by Hezekiah and his people's compliance, resulting in the city's deliverance from the king of Assyria. Additionally, a relationship is developed between the king as an exemplar, like whatever the king does, the people do. We've seen this, we explained this when we were doing uh, those chapters in Chronicles. So our chapters today, you can see um, I've, I've shown you the in the, that gray section. This is our reading block that we have been assigned for our first lesson in Come Follow Me. You can see that we're covering basically the first three pillars on the left side. <laughs> The problem with reading Isaiah this way is that because of the bifid structure, he wants you to read the matching pillars. Well, okay. in order to get the complete picture, you need the other side of the of the coin. Exactly. The bifid structure is like two sides of the same coin. And so what we're going to be doing is as we follow along with the Come Follow Me, you can see we, we kind of picked up 34 and 35 with chapters 1 through 5. We're going to follow along with the Come Follow Me reading schedule, but we're going to try and pick up as many paired themes as we can. You can see that um, the way it's kind of structured, we don't have any of the paired themes together. They're all kind of scattered throughout the reading, but I've kind of designed it and figured it out so that we can we can cover the basic ideas in the book of Isaiah in the seven themes by carefully selecting the things we emphasize in each of those chapters. Here in lesson 37, you can see that there's a blue highlight around chapters two through 12. This is because these chapters are in the Book of Mormon. So as we go through Isaiah, we're going to be paying a lot of attention to what chapters are quoted in the Book of Mormon and why. And you can see that most of our reading block from chapters 1 through 12, the ruin and rebirth, this uh, disloyal Ahaz, and then this loyal David that we're about to see in the punishment and deliverance section, that chapters 9 through 12, these are going to be embedded in our reading for the first lesson. So let's take a look at chapters 9 through 12. We're going to just have to 
highlight right over top of it. We're not, we're not going to go into any more really, really detail like we did with Ruin and Rebirth. We just needed to lay that foundation for the different themes of the bifid structure and that they are paired and that it's important to understand that they, they work together. So in the first pillar of um, what we will call the yellow pillar, the third theme in the book of Isaiah, we have a picture of a Davidic king. And it's interesting because he's pictured in chapter 9 and he's pictured in chapter 11. But, you know, right between chapters 9 and 11, we get chapter 10. That's the bad guy. That's, we are introduced to the king of Assyria in spades in chapter 10. He's going to do a lot of destruction there. This structuring infers, though, that David, the Davidic end-time king, will ultimately triumph over this guy in the middle, the king of Assyria, in our punishment and deliverance themes. Let's just go ahead and do a summary. An ideal agent of the Lord's punishment and deliverance was introduced through several heroic biblical types and through the development of many metaphorical pseudonyms. So again, we're seeing all of these metaphors for the servant and metaphors of the tyrant being established in these early chapters. And our Davidic servant is going to be pictured like Gideon, like Moses, like Abraham. You're going to see Isaiah taking all these little stories of out of these different Bible heroes and creating this faithful David in the end time. It's called a composite when you take little pieces, put it all together to make a new identity. This Davidic figure's victory over chaos is depicted through alternating chaos and creation words or motifs on an end time stage of events. So let's just take a look at some chaos and creation motifs. So you know what they're talking about there? Here you can see the flood. We talked about that one already. The flood is going to create chaos. We're in destruction. We're also going to see words like refuse in chapter 1. And in chapter 10, that king of Assyria, he's a saw and he's cutting down trees. What are trees in Isaiah? People. People. Okay, and so we're metaphorically going to be able to read about him being called a saw. And these are all destructive, chaotic motifs. Words like this are going to um, be, we'll just say that these are chaos themes. And out in Isaiah Illustrated, you'll see a little chaos thing written out to the side. And what you're going to see is that Isaiah is actually doing a battle between chaos and creation. It's so cool. I'll show you in a minute. Okay, so some creation words. Creation words would be like in Isaiah chapter 4, we saw that, that he plants the vineyard, okay? And we have the land regenerating in Isaiah chapter 11, okay? All right, this is a types and covenants chart where we actually go in and show you what's going on with some of the types. So in Isaiah chapter 9, we said that was a chapter about a Davidic type figure. It says, for thou hast smashed the yoke that burdened them, the staff of submission, the rod of those who subjected them, as in the day of Midian. Well, who, who, was, who fought the Midianites? Who was that? You remember? He checked the fleece. Right. That was Gideon. 
Gideon is our hero that is being referring to here. As in the days of Midian, what did Gideon do? Well, number one... Confused the enemy. Mostly. Yeah. And, and it's fun to start, okay, how far is this metaphor going? What yeah, was Isaiah referring to here? Okay. That would be fascinating. Yeah. And so it says that he smashes... Firing upon themselves. That's kind of interesting. Right. That he smashes the yoke and, he, and the staff and the rod. Well, wait a minute. That was in chapter 9. If we go into chapter 10, check this out. It says, Hail the Assyrian, the rod... He is a staff. He is my wrath in their hand. Again, God doesn't come down, you know, super angry and wrathful. No, he just lets the king of Assyria do it. He's calling him his wrath right there by name. I'm having this thought running through my head when we talk about Midian, when they start fighting amongst themselves. Another way that that's plausible is civil war. Yes. And and guys, this is exactly what Isaiah is doing, and it's why he's doing it. And he's giving us all of these clues and all of these codes if we know how to look for them. So look at this. The Assyrian is called the rod, the staff, and the wrath. And then it said in chapter 9 that this servant has smashed the staff, the rod, and the yoke of oppression. So again, remember, the Davidic... Entity in chapters 9 and the one we're about to look at in chapter 11 are going to conquer. They're going to get smash the one in the middle. But not until he does his work of destruction first. Because there's people of God that have not repented yet. And the Lord would save all that he can. The mention of Midian's defeat in both the coronation psalm of Isaiah 9, there's a whole chart in Isaiah Illustrated showing you that this is actually an ancient coronation hymn in chapter 9, and the Assyrian passage in chapter 10 identifies the Davidic king's victory over the rod, staff, and yoke as a victory over Assyria. And there's so many of these parallels that we can study. You can look at those charts and see, but... We notice in chapter 11 that David's name is not mentioned. Every little detail means something. So why was David's name mentioned in 9, but it's not mentioned in 11? It's because that the role that's being described for this end-time Davidic figure in chapter 11 was not exactly David. But it was like kind of like David, and so they're going to throw clues in there. So you know it's like David, but, but not exactly. We're not going to call it David. Instead, we're going to call him a sprig of Jesse. Or, you remember Jesse is David's father, right? So he's a sprig of Jesse. Okay, or I'm going to show you something so cool. you got to be sensitive to all the little nuances that Isaiah is going to use. So, number one, he's going to say that he's like Abraham and Moses. Well, guess what? In the matching pillar on the yellow theme in the second half of the book, he's going to use Abraham and Moses again in his in his character traits. Okay? All right. So here are, let's zoom in here. We just turned our little David guy over that's represented as our composite David of all the biblical heroes, right? That's in chapters 9 through 12. Here we see that He's compared to Moses. It says that he lets his hand, he lifts his hand 
or staff over the sea to let the people go. Remember, the sea is the chaos. He's the, the king of Assyria in the end time. And we can see that he's going to, in these chapters, actually pull some types from Solomon and some types from Hezekiah. And again, we don't have time to go into all of the details, but you can pick them up if you know that they're there. Apart from me, this is Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7, Apart from me there is no God. Who predicts what happens, as do I, and is the equal of me in appointing a people from of old as types foretelling things to come? Another way of writing Isaiah 46.10. Exactly, right? They're kind of twin verses. Really, what a validation of God. Not only the fact that he can foretell the future, but the fact that he has orchestrated human history so that what happens in the end time will be a repeat of many of the things that happened in the past. And Isaiah creates all these composites. So here we can see um, this part where in chapter 11, it says he extends the Lord's hand and brings about the return of their return exodus, just like when Moses extended his hand over the Red Sea and the people came out on the exodus there. So he's kind of getting you this image that we're tying it back to Moses right there. And and then in Moses, when they cross the Red Sea, in Exodus 15, they sing a song of salvation. You remember Miriam sings and it, with the ladies and then they sing this huge song of salvation in Exodus 15. Well, look what's happening in Isaiah 11 and 12. It says that each hand instance causes a remnant to be delivered from being scattered among the nations and a song of salvation immediately follows in chapter 12. So there's that pattern there. And this is my favorite one. This is the last one we're going to take time for. This is so cool. Look in 2 Samuel chapters 5, 8, and 10. You have King David's victory over the Philistines, over Edom, over Moab, and then over Ammon in that order. Okay? If you go to Isaiah chapter 11, check it out. It says that the Lord's hand, his ensign in the end time, will swoop the Philistines, take Edom, take Moab, and the Ammonites obey. It's the exact same uh, order. order that King David did. So you see these nuances in chapter 11 to King David. All right, so let's look straight into chapter 11 and probably one of the most quoted verses. It is that a shoot will spring up from the stock of Jesse, the sprig of Jesse there. There's a Davidic idea there and a branch from its graft bear fruit. And we, I've had a lot of fun with the kids having them try and explain this verse to me. But um, when you begin to understand Isaiah's imagery, and this same imagery is all throughout Scripture, you begin to see what's going on. Number one, we notice that there was a tree that was dying in Zenos' allegory. It was cut down. Or in Romans chapter 11, Paul says the branches were broken off from this tree, okay? Jerusalem was cut down in 30 AD when Rome came and destroyed the city, right? But from that root, 
from that root, there will be a rod. In the King James, it says a rod. In Abraham Gilead's translation, it's a shoot that grows up from the root of the tree. Um, we, we had a fruit orchard, and, and we would have these, they're called hoiters in Hebrew, uh, or they're, they're just wild shoots that grow up from the root of the trees, if you have fruit trees. And often you'll cut those down because you don't want it to take nourishment from the tree. But if you lost the tree and the tree's cut down, then you can let that shoot grow so it can save the tree. Okay? Save the root right. of the tree, so to speak. Especially in an olive tree, they, they often have these shoots that grow up. So from this cut down tree, we have a shoot that grows up. This is the gospel going to the nations. This rod is going to represent um, the the time of the Gentiles and particularly the fullness of the time of the Gentiles and the restoration of the prophet Joseph Smith because in DNC 134 Joseph Smith actually asks what is this rod this shoot that grows up from the tree and the Lord tells him it is a servant in the hands of Christ who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim in the house of Joseph. So notice that this rod is more Ephraim and the house of Joseph, okay? On whom there is laid much power. So this again would be, you know, Moroni to the prophet Joseph Smith, you're to usher in the fullness of the time of the Gentiles. Then in DNC 113 verse six, it says, what is the sprig in Abraham Gilead's translation, it's, it's more literal to the Hebrew. It is a sprig. It, it's not a branch. Notice it's called a sprig. When you graft something in, do you graft in a branch or do you graft in a little sprig? Okay. You, you can't graft in a branch. If you graft in a branch, it can't grow into the part of the tree. You graft in a little piece. You, you know, kind of, you make a scion, you, you, you cut it into a pointy little, and you cut a slit and stick it in, and then it grows into the tree. But you, you don't graft a full-grown branch into the tree. You graft in a little sprig, and that's why in this grafting part, it's more it's better translated as a sprig but in the king james version it's um it's called a root in verse 10 and it says um in dnc 113 behold thus saith the lord this is a descendant of jesse david as well as of joseph so you they're they're both house of israel through and through but one is more of ephraim and one is more of jesse and this sprig that is grafted in into this rod or uh, that, that grows up out of the tree, unto him rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom, and he is an ensign. Guess what one of his codenames is in Isaiah? Ensign. He's an ensign for the gathering of my people in the last days. So again, we're seeing all of this kind of fits together, and this is just, you know, brownie points in here from um we looked at moshiach which is the uh which another way of saying messiah um and this is the jewish belief of this coming david in the end time it's very interesting it says orthodox jews have generally held that the messiah will be a patrilineal father to son descendant of king david okay jewish tradition alludes to two redeemers 
in the end time, both of whom are called Mashiach and are involved in ushering in the Messianic age. There's Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef, or Mashiach, Messiah, the son of David, and Messiah, the son of Joseph. Two of them. Listen to what they say. The essential task of Messiah, the son of Joseph, is to act as a forerunner to Messiah, the son of David. This is crazy. Um, the Messiah, son of Joseph, is a descendant of the tribe of Ephraim, and he is also referred to as Messiah, son of Ephraim. So I, I just think that's a fascinating little tidbit to add into all of this from DNC 113. And here again, we have the prophet Joseph Smith saying that although David was a king, he never did obtain the spirit and power of Elijah, that the throne and kingdom of David is to be taken from him and given to another by the name of David in the last days, raised up out of his lineage. Okay. All right. So take a look here, though, at the rod. What happens to that time of the Gentiles? What happens to that rod? The axe. The axe from Isaiah 10. Okay, the king of Assyria. We have this end time tyrant that goes on a world empire quest and he betrays, he cuts down, and he burns. Okay, good thing that the Lord's got a remnant. He's got that sprig that's grafted into the rod that is going to grow into the kingdom of God in the millennial tree when Babylon falls and is cut down. A shoot will sprig up, spring up from the stalk of Jesse and a branch from its graft will bear fruit. What a riddle and what an amazing prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. God intervenes to punish the wicked and deliver the righteous. The king of Assyria chastens. This is all in these yellow, the third themes here in chapters 9 through 12. And then the matching ones, 41 to 46. We're going to do that one in another, in another lesson. The king of Assyria chastens the nations and brings them to ruin. The king of Assyria serves as God's instrument of justice. But God's servant and his son delivers God's people from Zion um, People, Zion, from exile. Servant and son are, by the way, Egyptian motifs. A father-son in the ruling hierarchy is more of an Egyptian theme. They return in a new exodus out of all nations to the place Zion. And the reason I mentioned that is because when we get to the second half, we're going to go with a more Mesopotamian theme where the he's not called a father and son. It's called the um, He's called the servant. In that you have the emperor and the, and the suzerain and the servant is more of the Mesopotamian rulership motif that you're going to catch in chapters 41 through 46. An ideal agent of the Lord's punishment and deliverance was introduced through the biblical heroes. We saw the creation and the chaos motifs and the new conquest and return. This is a picture of what Isaiah is going to do in the matching pillar. We're not going to go into it, but look at this. Chapters 41. To 46. The whole thing is a giant chiasm. And in the center, we have the rebirth of Israel and we have the fall of Babylon. And the title of the chiasm 
both in chapter 41, Jehovah raises up righteousness from the east, and in chapter 46, Jehovah brings righteousness from the east. We're going to parallel all the way through. We're going to have a chaos and creation motif war, and we're going to create a composite of an end-time servant who is both a righteous warrior, a servant, and we're going to draw on some imagery from Cyrus as well, who allowed Israel to return because there's going to be a grand return in the end time as well. So this is so amazing and we'll, we'll, we'll focus more on that end time servant that's in parallel with this Davidic figure that we have in chapters hmm. 9 through 12. But in chapters 9 through 12, we have the servant taking out the king of Assyria. But in chapters 41 through 46, he's actually going to take out Babylon. So, I mean, is this amazing? The Isaiah's well, doing all just, of this? My mind just went a whole other direction. Uh -oh. I don't know that we have time for <laughs> Like I said, I got stuck back in Daniel. You got, um, there we go. Back to Daniel. Um, I was just thinking, you know, um, in 1948, we had somewhat of a decree. Mm -hmm. And then in 67, we had another layering of of Israel's return. And then in 2017, I'm trying to remember the exact date when Trump said that the embassy would be in Jerusalem. I was, right. I was thinking the capital back to of the decree of Cyrus and the decrees coming towards... Okay, guys, we have uh, some more math in Daniel I'm, coming up. I'm soon. sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. My mind just started going. He's, he's gone to he's gone to the math of Daniel, which we love. My mind just kind of started going. Is there a parallel here? Exactly. I'm sure there is. When we get to the second yellow theme in the second half of Isaiah, we're going to see the fall of Babylon, just like we saw the conquering of Assyria. All right, and so in chapters 41 through 46, we see the fall of Babylon, and we'll do more of that in the next lesson. Okay, so in the second half, we're going to see the righteous warrior, the servant who is a Mesopotamian theme this time, a servant instead of the son that's Egyptian, and we're going to see a Cyrus figure deliver them in the end time and all of this is going to be embedded in a grand chiasm that spans all of chapters 41 to 46 while it's implying employing the chaos and creation battle going on and making a composite of a single person and being part of this bifid structure in parallel with the first one and this is isaiah just structure inside of structure inside of structure inside of structure and the bifid structure is the key to seeing all of them all of to the connect in the parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're out of time. We're going to just really quickly tell you what the last uh, four themes are. We're going to have the humiliation and exaltation theme, which we're going to focus on in the next lesson. It's going to be in the first set of the themes of in the red color, the central theme of humiliation and exaltation. That will be chapters 13 through 23, and this is going to be an oracle against the nation. And it's it's amazing because in the next lesson, we only get to read the first two chapters of all the 11 oracles against the nations. We're going to cheat, though, and show you a couple of really cool things from some of those other chapters. But all 11 of these chapters are offset with 
in the second half, in the red theme, there's only one chapter. Chapter 47. Chapter 47 is the fall of Babylon. And by structuring it this way, Isaiah is saying that the fall of Babylon includes all the wicked nations of the world. And we're going to call it the Babylon Umbrella. And we'll get to look at that one. Which, conceptually, wicked being the twisting. Yes, uh, exactly. That may not include the heathen nations. Because, in a sense, they're yes. hard to call them wicked because they're naive. Whereas the wicked nations are those who have mingled truth. Hmm. Nephi, second Nephi, those who had the fullness of the gospel and rejected it. That's also third Nephi 16. Um, we, we went all through this again, that none of this could happen if the Lord's people themselves were not in an apostate condition, which is Isaiah chapter 1. Okay, all right. This uh, fifth theme is suffering and salvation. This is the next the next thing that will happen after you have been uh, delivered and you've received exaltation. Are you willing now to follow after the suffering servant? Are you willing to suffer for someone else's salvation? The whole it's, theme of what we teach, come follow me. Are you exactly. willing to be a savior on Mount Zion? A savior on Mount Zion, right. Or a righteous Davidic king that will save his people, right? Right. And all... Or, as we were talking about earlier, your family. Your family, a righteous patriarch who will cover his family with his love and with his sacrifice. And with his protection. All right, we have in this theme of suffering and salvation, we're gonna have the we're gonna have actually Isaiah's mini apocalypse. There's there's a part of Isaiah that's actually called Isaiah's mini apocalypse because they know that it's not history, it's end time. Right. And it's chapters twenty-four through twenty-seven. And we're gonna see interspersed throughout those chapters five songs of salvation. So you see that while all the judgments are falling, there's a remnant, and they're being saved, and they're singing the songs of salvation. It's so beautiful. And then on the other matching thing, we're going to see that there's going to be the songs of the servant that are going to blow your mind. Okay. In our next theme, disloyalty and loyalty, we are going to see woes. As in the first part, it more focuses on a covenant that's being broken. In the end time, like King Ahaz, we've got these people. Who are disloyal. Um, yeah, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. Drunk not with wine, but with their own pride. And they actually trust in the arm of flesh, and they make a covenant with death, rather than be faithful to their God. It's, it's really tough chapters there. We have our battles, our battles at the gate with um Ephraim and our battle at Jerusalem in chapters 30 and 31. We'll talk about these in the next lesson when we actually are going to read that block. And then um, in the other half, on the other side, we're going to have the covenant with life. We're going to have the whole formation of a new millennial covenant for a millennial kingdom. And it's a composite of all of the covenants with the fathers in the past. And again, the covenant with death versus the covenant of life. These are 
themes that are being worked by Isaiah between the chapters of the matching color in the bifid structure. Okay? The seventh theme is disinheritance and inheritance. And when we get to that point where we have proven faithful and we inherit the kingdom or we are cast out and disinherited, this is creates a doorway where the themes of the bifid structure are a, pro, a procession of trials and events that we pass through so that we can return to the presence of God in the end. And this is a magnificent structure that, that governs the entire book of Isaiah. The last one, theme 7, is 32 and 33. We actually skipped that in our reading, but in 32 and 33 it juxtaposes an ideal king with the arch traitor because this is going to be our disinheritance or our, and our, our inheritance theme. And the righteous are servants and sons who join in the end. The 144,000, we're going to see them. And we're going to see the return of Israel to her promised lands. And a happy ever after in the grandest fairy tale ever told. The book of Isaiah. You'll have to forgive all my cute little puppets. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually did a puppet show with one, of my show. <laughs> with one of my classes. And these are all puppets that we used in the puppet show. But they're kind of fun to use as, you know, learning aids throughout the book of Isaiah. So don't forget, you can go to our website www.propheticappointments.com you can see all of 28 of the Isaiah classes there and if you really want to dig a little deeper on some of the things that we talked about in this lesson you can watch class 15 which delves into the bifid structure more deeply class 2 delves into the ruin and rebirth and ties it into a whole bunch of other scriptures and then Number five is the um, apostasy, judgment, restoration, salvation cycle. And I hope that we can hit that one a, a little later on, but we're like way out of time for this one. So, okay. Welcome to Isaiah. This is so fun. Yes. <laughs> and as we end up here, we're going to give a little plug for our new book again. Um, That's right. Understanding Daniel's Timeline, Prophecy Unsealed, and. We would love your help on a pre-order just to help us not only, defer. Not only that, it guarantees that you'll get it because, you know, that first shipment right. that we got in, they'll, the first books will go out to the, all those that pre-order. So Right. And we have no clue how the demand's going to look, so we did our best shot. But pre-order, if Isaiah you can. Unsealed in the Last Days, thanks to the work of many great men, including Dr. Abraham Giliotti and Daniel being unsealed because of the knowledge that's available to us today. Yeah, because of the knowledge is being increased in our day. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And thank you. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.